Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I have John Lavers in the beach shack. Now he's been a lifeguard for 40 years. He's worked at Maroubra, he's worked Japan, he's worked most of his career over at Sutherland, which covers the Cronulla beaches. He's also done many, many jobs, even as a stripper. John tells us his story of growing up in the western suburbs coming to the beaches, learning to surf, and that encouraged him to be a lifeguard. So now let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with John. Yeah, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure to have this guy who's worked a lot of time as a lifeguard, but he's got a lot of good stories and also... He grew up in the western suburbs, so ended up at the beach. So welcome, John Lavers, to the Beach Shack, mate. Yeah, good to be with you, Hoppo. Now, mate, you said you grew up in the western suburbs, so tell us a little bit about your childhood. Mate, basically, it was Maryland. It was a bit different to what it is these days. So it was everywhere. I spent in fourth class at school. I moved to Maryland. Uh, prior to that, I was living with my grandmother at Quarry Fields, of all places. So we used to... Uh, get on the steam train and every Friday afternoon to go down, get swap over at Liverpool Station, get on the electric train to, to Maryland's and spend the weekend with my mother on the Friday afternoon, back back the other way, electric train, then the old steam train. <laughs> yeah, it was good. And, mate, also, what, so was it, you know, when you are growing up there, did you play all different sports or what? what no, uh, I wasn't very sporty. Do? I was a bit, of, a bit of a runt. So you know, I had to go at um, rugby union at school once and I scored a try. And they said, um, no, you're, you're not getting picked because you're too much of a hog with the ball. I mean, but I scored a try. Isn't that, isn't that the idea? <laughs> oh, you're out. Okay. So, yeah, mine was just um, my sport was hanging down the spot cafe at Maryland's on the main street, playing the pinballs out the back. So from there then, what did you do, um, you know, after you went to school, you finished school, what job did you end up going into? My mother dragged me down and got me a, an apprenticeship with the government Department of Government Transport. <coughs> so I was working on the buses. So it was a um, 12 months we had to do down at Everly Railway Workshop, which was uh, it's like a cave working down there, uh, which is now quite a trendy place to be. They've done it all up and it's art studios and film studios and everything down there. <coughs> so, yeah, 12 months <coughs> down there and then out to Shalora Bus Workshops and they farmed us out to ride bus depot. I worked there, Pagewood, uh, Waverley, and ended up at Randwick when I was a full-fledged tradesman. So where did the – I mean, back in the day we were called beach inspectors, now we're called lifeguards. So obviously you lived in the western suburbs. You had no real beach experience, and you said, you know, didn't probably do a lot of swimming. So what? where was the interest to become a lifeguard? I was working on the buses and I, I had a, a TA, a trades assistant. He was a little Italian guy. He was, he was a good bloke. And I just picked up the local paper and 
one day at morning tea and, and I saw the ad for beach inspectors. I thought, this is going to be better than working under five-ton buses. And <laughs> I said, I'm going, to, I'm going to do that. The TA said, you go and ring him now. I said, yeah, no, mate, I'll ring him later. And he goes, no, you do it now. I go, no, mate, hey, I'm the tradesman here. I'll, I'll tell you when I ring. <laughs> he goes, no, you do it now. I went, oh, okay. So, and I've always stuck by that by that premise now that stuck in my head from him, like he was quite a cool guy really. I mean, he had five terrace houses in Paddington at the time, but he was my TA. So, yeah, I live by that premise now, do it now. Um, so, yeah, I went, rang up and went down to Maruba Beach uh, for, the, for the get-together, which uh, Lenny Haskins was the boss down there at the time. He was a bit of a, a hard nut. He said, you've got to do this, this and that, get your advance, resus. And he didn't recognise the bronze medallion at that stage. What his testing you put, he put you through, he said was harder than the bronze medallion. So he was happy to put you on with that. And there was a lot of animosity between the surf life savings and the lifeguards just through that alone. But Lenny was a hard nut. If anybody, if you know of Lenny's history, he gave me some, some good upbringing. But I tell you what, he also drove you nuts. Yeah. No, I have heard a lot about Lenny because Ken Holloway worked with him too at Maroubra for yeah. a while. So Yeah, that's where I met Kenny. Okay, so you met Ken uh, when you were working there at Maroubra. Yeah, I think it was we both started the first first season together. But he had a history over there, being a supply saver over there. I had no supply saving background. I was Marylands Marylands boy and my passion was surfing back then. We were all sort of service from Marylands. We'd head over north side every weekend and then we started heading down to Jeringong and when we sleep in our panel vans on the, uh, on the point at Jeringong, that's where we basically cut our teeth surfing. So I thought I was a bit of a surfer and when Lenny Haskins said, okay, you've got to go and swim 800 metres in less than 14 minutes, I said, oh, yeah, I'll do that. Finished shift one day at the bus depot and went out to Guildford Pool, dived in. I had long hair at the time and I swam down in the pool, got 25 metres and got, got to the end. I've gone, fire out. I'm out of breath here. And I turned around, pushed off, got to the other end, flicked my hair out every time I <laughs> goggles on. Got the other end, I was like, far out, I've got another 30 laps to go. <laughs> so <laughs> I just applied myself, just kept going back, and then I went for the, for the initial test. I actually failed it. Then he said, oh, you've gone out too hard. Come back in another two weeks, go keep going, do some swimming, and come back, I'll jump in with you. So it was good of him to do that and, and jump in with me. And when, I, when he first started swimming, because I'd never done any squad training or anything, I thought, this guy's swimming like a rock, I'm going to drown here. <laughs> but then he put the pace on, you know, we... In the end, he pulled away from me, but I still made it in the time and, yeah, became a lifeguard. And then when you got on as a lifeguard, what was that like, the experience? Yeah, it was good. I mean, when he was in your face, he was a hard nut. Like, he had a fight with one of his other lifeguards out the back of the car park. <laughs> and, you know, like, Lenny was no spring chicken. He was, he was you know, doing a boxing his day, whatever, and they reckoned that they had to pull him apart because, you know, like, Lenny wasn't giving up, the other bloke, young bloke wasn't giving up and, that's from pound for pound. They burned his car one day. They put a match to it. It wasn't what you call the most liked bloke. Um, I mean, if we had a board rider come one one inch inside the surf the surfcraft area, we'd have to go down and take the board two weeks. And you know, they'd carry the board up to the to the room. And if they wanted me, me to carry it, I'd carry it up and I'd drop it on the um, steps. Okay, right? <laughs> one day, we had a bunch of lifeguards or beach inspectors back then in the room of Maroubra. This guy comes across into the surf, into the other side of the surf craft area. The other lifeguards go, hey, go down and get him, John. Go, yeah, okay, I'll go down. So <laughs> walked down, you know, called him in, whistled him in, and he came in. And they, I don't know where you're from. I said, but over here at Maroubra, you come one inch inside the surf craft area, 
you're losing your boy for two weeks. He goes, oh, sorry, mate. Sorry, mate. Didn't mean to. I promise I won't do it again. I go, where, where are you from? He goes, oh, I'm over also. I'm just surfing around up and down the beaches trying to, you know, I don't want to lose this boy. It's my contest board. I said, okay, mate. Well, just remember, one inch and you're gone. You're lose it for two weeks. Yeah, okay. I walk back up to the room and the guys go, what did he say? What did he say? And I go, oh, I just told him, you know, rules is different in Maroubra. And he, and they go, you know who that is? I went, no. I went, that was Tommy Carroll. That was me. Yeah, he was out of pipeline, just doing that big carve under the lip. And, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I didn't know where he was at the time. But, yeah. <laughs> Mate, then from there, what, what did you do from there? Did you stay long as a lifeguard at Maroubra? I met a, met a mate, met a guy there, became friends with, Wayne Tracy, and uh, he was heading over to the Brolis Islands at Western Australia. So I thought, oh, I'll go over. I wouldn't mind. I've heard of it before. Just certainly on the coast, a couple of guys down there that, that um, did it. <clears throat> So I went over to the Brawler Islands, Western Australia. I didn't have a job. He, Wayne had had a job lined up. So when I got there, I was scratching around and ended up getting onto a boat. Some guy pulled a pin at the last moment and yeah, went over there for three months working on the, the Brawler Islands. Beautiful over there. It's like the Great Barrier Reef Valley in the west, about 50k out the sea from Geraldton. But just coral, all coral atolls. I, I thought it'd be oh, nice tropical islands <clears throat> like that photo in the background of what you've got there. Got there just coral atolls, but good waves over there, great waves. So we actually got struck by lightning and um, our boat, and so we got flown back into Geraldine in the hospital, and uh, you know spent there a couple of days there, and all checked out, we're, we're okay. So I bought a board, and then when we went back out, we yeah, surfed some great waves out there. Mm-hmm. And there would have been many people around. Were there many people surfing then? There would have uh, been just the other, a few of the other decades. So we'd all come in from pulling the pots. Yeah, just get a chinny and just go back out. It's like swimming in the wilderness. It's great. Yeah. Come back in. That would have been a great experience. Yeah, come again, grab a couple of lobsters, just slice them up, put them in a pot, boil them up, slice them up, lobster sandwiches for lunch. So when you're working there, do you, were you out there for days at a time? We you only went out for the day and came back no. to the mainland? You get, you're get you out there locked in on the islands. Everybody starts to go a bit tropo after a while. <laughs> There was this one, one of the islands we'd go across and it was, I had a bee hall there and one pool table and it was like pirates. They're all pirates out there. And, you know, one guy didn't, you know, did, you know, took a shot off another boat, whatever. Next thing, the lights are go out. There's boats jumping over tables, fighting every boy, chairs going everywhere, getting <laughs> smashed with chairs. It was mad. Blokes wake up the next day, there's blokes with front teeth missing and you know, cut on them. They're pulling it together with bits of tape and bandages. <laughs> I was lucky I survived that. But, yeah. and, and how long did you do that for? Uh, four months the season. Then my mate Wayne, he went on up to Port Edland and I came back and ended up getting married first time with a girl that I met um, through circumstance living in Cronulla. I moved out to Cronulla, yeah, that's right. I moved out to Cronulla and yeah, lived in what, ironically, I'm living in Ozone Street now. I own a unit um, and... I was living four doors up when I first moved out of Cronulla. <clears throat> but, yeah, we um, met this girl and she lived at, uh, she went to school at Mary Macleod College and was a nice Catholic girl. So Cronulla must have been a, a great place to grow, you know, at that time. Was that, would that be the 70s? Uh, yeah, yeah, 70, so 70 to 22, 3, 4, 5. Yeah, yeah, all that time, yeah. And then, well, you must have liked it because you're still living there now. So, oh yeah, yeah, Cronulla's a great place. So you're still in Cronulla, so you must have liked it to stay there. So, what was the reason why you stayed? 
no one can hear you scream in Cronulla. <laughs> you, you come shy rise. It's a great place. Now. We've got two rivers, you know, five kilometres of beach, um, some fantastic point breaks, you know, point, Cronulla Point, Voodoo, a few other little super spots, which I won't mention. Yeah, it's a great place. My, my surfing is still passion. Um, my passion is still surfing. So that's not only you, know, you get a train into the city if you want or it's in the suburbs. You want to come over to Bondi or Bonte and go to the zoo, you can go there and check it, check it out. Yeah, that's no, a great spot over there. And then, as you said, your marriage didn't last long, the first one, so you just then stayed anyway. So do you think that was a good thing? Um, it must have been tough at the time. Yeah, it was tough. The first marriage, I'd go to, go to work sometimes, and the boss back then, he'd see my eyes to get my eyes so I could see. But, you know, when you're young, you think, you know, it's the end of your world. But I ended up went on a holiday up the Gold Coast of all places and met another girl up there and ended up, I said, come down and live in Canola. It's a great place. And she wouldn't come down. So I went up and lived up there and <clears throat> got a job, did every all sorts of job up there, builder's labourer, bricks labourer, pastor's labourer. I was working for Avco Finance at one stage. Yeah. Did a bit of modelling up there. Yeah. yeah. And what, what type of modelling did you do? Uh, I ended up doing everything. I was a lot of TV work because the, uh, the Gold Coast <clears throat> was just growing then. So there was a lot of high-rise buildings we were doing roaches for and, uh, commercials, milk, forex. Um, actually, did a, a Coke ad, which I was featuring, which was a good one. Fashion parades up there, and actually, uh, there's a there's a mob from Sydney who came up who I knew. They were from Cronulla. Nigel King, Nigel King, and he had this. Um, well, back then it was called an all mail review show or a strip show, <laughs> and um, so <clears throat> they they sold a franchise to Gold Coast Lady and. So I ended up started there, but then when I eventually moved back to Sydney, I was doing it with Nigel King, and um, so we, I was, we were the first real male strippers in Australia. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> pretty unique. I mean, we just did a show where we had, we used to call it the seven phases of man, so <clears throat> it was, we, we had all the, the suits and sports gear and swim gear, whatever, we'd have it on the stage, but we'd get changed behind the stage, behind the, the the suit rack, or the clothes rack, and at the end we'd we'd go out. We'd have to, we'd all have our uh, coats on, which is the last part of the parade. But then we would take our underpants off, and everybody thought we had nothing on underneath. But we had three bang one underneath, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so we throw our underpants out into the audience, and let all be screaming and yelling, <laughs> and then we'd treat <laughs> um, up with a compy that we would run down and pretend we we're going to do a big flash. And the company was going, no, you can't do that. And anyway, we put a big flash, but we always put a G string on it. But yeah, all women go mad. But uh, it's nothing like the, the acrobatics that they do now, like the Chippendales and Manpower and all those guys <laughs> move to some levels above what we were doing. Ours is more like a, a vaudeville sort of, sort of show, but we were the first ones that did it. <laughs> Mate, oh, that would have been some uh, some fun times then. Yeah. You've, uh, Women yelling and cheering, and uh, well, they still used to jump up on the stage. We'd have to fight them off. <laughs> uh, I remember one day, thinking, well, I couldn't believe it. I just flicked my underpants out into the stage, and this girl sitting there, and she was still like a bit subdued, and I think she might have been a mother with a daughter. And anyway, they just landed on her nose, and for some reason, they just stuck there, and she didn't move. She just stuck there, <laughs> sitting there with my underpants on her nose. I'm going, get them off. <laughs> <laughs> Never got them back, actually. <laughs> well, mate, then um, you did join the 
Sutherland Shire, the Cronulla lifeguards. Yeah. That was, you said, you came back from the Gold Coast and, and yeah, ended up going Yeah, I actually lifeguarded up there just casual for three years. Yeah, in between going to shows and all the other stuff. Yeah, then I know I went over to Singapore because I was doing a lot of, you know, the TV sort of work. And they said, John, you've either got to go back to Sydney or go to Singapore, Hong Kong, Europe or New York if you want to do something with this. I'm like, yeah, I'm sort of over Goldie. So I got on a plane with a one-way ticket, went to Singapore. You have to have a ticket out because they won't let you stay there. Two-week visa, three days in a hotel there, but they end up drawing in us, building us out with the agency that I lined up. Uh, I did four months over there. There's doing TV, fashion parades, stuff. And then my partner at the time, the Goldie, she ended up flying over because <laughs> she lost her job and came over and I ended up coming back to Sydney. Yeah. Yeah. Going back, got back on the beach at Maroubra uh, with uh, uh, Brad Mayers. Um, yeah, I remember Brad. Yeah, yeah he's a good bloke, good boss. Um, he's unfortunate, whatever, whatever, whatever happened to him. And that was sort of a sad time. But then I got a job as an airport fireman. I saw that in the paper, so I applied for that and got that. Went down to the six weeks intense training down in Melbourne. You know, I had a few running into one of the officers and then you get three haircuts in two days. <laughs> <laughs> but there was 26 of us in the course and I ended up coming fourth in the course all, all up, so I was pretty happy about that. <clears throat> so you've had a lot of different careers, haven't you? You've gone from lifeguard to TV world and, you know, fashion models to to stripper to then out to the airport. A lot of changes, wasn't it? So was there a reason for that or you just – kept bouncing around and opportunities came up and you just took each opportunity as they came? Um, I think like a lot of lifeguards, we're all sort of hyper, like we all have high energy and, yeah, sort of, I don't know, I just saw something and thought, yep, I'll advance and do something different or <coughs> try and get better at doing something. And, yeah. But at, at the fireys, so I mean, not many planes crash at Sydney Airport. We'd have, we'd have eight firemen sitting up there next to the um, Southern Cross Drive, watching Jumbos take off, going crash a bus. If there was something good there. <laughs> and I was doing triathlons at the time then, so I thought, oh, I just, um, the opportunity came up to go back to the beach at Cronulla, so I kicked that and ended up back at, yeah. So for the listeners, it, back in those days, lifeguards were really only a seasonal job, wasn't it? It was only really sort of your October through to the, to the Easter weekend or Anzac Day pretty much uh, towards the end of April. So everyone had to go find another job uh, for the, you know, what, five five months of the year, which made it pretty tough. So I was still fortunate with Sutherland Council. Uh, when I first started back there, they, re, they redeployed you uh, if you had a trade. And that's where luckily my apprenticeship, my mechanic um, came in handy, which I mean, I wasn't a real good mechanic. Um, they used to send me up here hard and, yeah, they'd give me all the shit jobs anyway, but it's a bit of animosity there. Oh, you come to the surf here again? <laughs> I mean, what, what shit job are you going to give me now? Um, it was a bit like that those days. People would people would go from, you know, work as a lifeguard then into another section of, of council and, and work there. But when, how was it working over there compared to Maroubra when you went to uh, work at Cronulla? Well, each time I, I worked in Maroubra, I ended up, Leaving before the season finished, so uh, the first stint uh, at Maroubra, I went to the Bros Islands, and the second stint at Maroubra, I went to the Fire Brigade, so the Airport Fireys. So I didn't have to sort of find other employment during the winter. It worked out okay. 
And then at uh, when did that go full time? You, you ended up full time at Cronulla. So yeah. obviously, when you went there and started there, you ended up staying for a, a long period of time. Yeah, I think it's forty years. Yeah, yeah. I was I, I did the mechanics during the winter, and then uh, something happened there. They changed the yard, and so then I applied for uh, got on with the Rangers back then. And then I became uh, environmental protection officers and. So I worked there for uh, quite a few seasons, which was interesting. Uh, yeah, it was a good job. They were happy with us up there. We sort of got in and did the work, and I like going around and <coughs> booking people that they they gave us the uh, delegations to book, be able to book people, buy people up. So my favourite was people parked in the disabled spots. <coughs> so uh, yeah, we'd have to go up the office and start at eight o'clock in the morning. I got to be a bit of a Nazi. I used to pull into Places like Guy Me or Carrying Bar and check to see if there's any cars there. I always had the book with me, so I just write them up on <laughs> <laughs> work. But oh, you're parking disabled without a sticker. You're not disabled. Get out. And I was pretty happy to find it. It was about $280 back then. Yeah. So you said you, uh, you know, 40 years of lifeguard, and, and what stands out? I mean, obviously, we, we get a lot of resuscitations, rescues. What what stands out at uh, you know, when you're working all those years as a lifeguard? I think the advancements that it's gone through. Um, when we started, I was given a pair of shorts and a short sleeve t-shirt, a hat, and a whistle. And a Cronulla. So yeah, now we've got two-way radios. One of the best things happened to lifeguards. Uh, we went through the, the IRBs, the rubber ducks, and now in the jet bikes, which um, I'll gladly take credit for, is helping to introduce and implement into lifeguarding, just for a chance that a representative from Yamaha came out to Cronulla and I ran into him and I said, yeah, mate, I'm in charge. Well, I was in charge then because of my mechanical skills and that I was in charge of the, you know, well, they used to call me the initial rescue boat captain for Cronulla, so I trained everybody up on the boats and showed them how to get the motors started and you know, if they rolled over or whatever. Um, and then he, he said, well, give you a jet bike to try out and try like half a dozen different styles of jet bikes. We sunk a couple, we blew a couple up. And then, but then they got better. They progressed you know, during that time. I had a bloke uh, from Manta Bodyboards. He, he came on board and he was trying to help us with the, the, the board, the rescue set, set up in the back. And yeah, it was a whole process. And I had one guy actually, because they were going through Stony Creek motorcycles. Uh, and then by chance, I thought, I better go, the boat show came up. So I'll go to the boat show and have a look. See what's what's available, and I came across Sea Dude out at the boat show, and um, they were just they they had a, a setup in the short marine just down the road from us. I thought, well, we'll, we'll have a look. So they brought one down, we put it in the water at Cronulla, and I took the guy out and brought it down, and we went out for a bill on that, and took him out. It was about eight foot, nine, ten foot up at um, Wonder. I took him on the back, and I took him out through there, and he just he nearly had a heart attack. <laughs> anyway. Got him back and I go, hey, these go good. And so, so then it was um, Cedar versus Yamaha. So it became a little bit, uh, not massive, but you know, one guy ended up, he's, I got to work at North Carolina one day and he, he walked up to me and he goes, you you thinking about going with Cedar? Well, I said, oh, no, just whatever bike's the best bike, you know, we've got to look at the best bike. And he said, I'd be looking at um, going with the Yamaha because they know some pretty influential people up at the council and your job could be in jeopardy. I went, what are you talking about? I just <laughs> stepped around and kept walking. 
So maybe yeah. we'll go with the best bike. You know? It turned out we put them side by side. This, the Yamaha camp went one side, the guys, one of the guys down the beach. I was pushing the Sudus because I thought they were a lot more stable at that time, more stable, better fuel efficiency, and they were faster. And so we lined two of them up in choppy conditions and both ways into the chop with the chop and the Sudu outperformed both at that time. So that, yep. Yeah, I mean, they're all good. They're all great bikes now. Yamaha, Sudu. Yeah. And I know the time we went with Sudu. There's still a Sudu now. Yeah, I remember um, our first jet skis were the, the old two-strokes. It was only two-strokes yeah. originally. Yeah. Noisy, exhausted out the side. Yeah. But now with the four-stroke, it's, um, yeah, the machines, the, the, they're so good now. It's um, it's like having, you know, three lifeguards in the water when you put yeah. The, yeah. the bike in there. Yeah, well, all the lifeguards, at Penola, they were anti-jet bikes. You know, you know, I, was, I was pushing them. And finally, they come across. So Yamaha, when I didn't go with them, I went with Sudo, they took off and went to the Gold Coast and introduced them up there. And Warren Young, the head lifeguard of the Gold Coast at the time, he still says oh, we were the first ones that introduced jet bikes to Australian lifeguarding. But I tell him, no, you weren't wrong. We were. <laughs> Mate, uh, you touched on uh, doing triathlon. So obviously... Once you become a lifeguard, there's a lot of uh, training, swimming, and, and, and a lot of lifeguards have gone from ocean sports into the triathlon sport. So tell us a bit about that. Why did you go into a triathlon? It's just that everybody was doing it at the time. It seemed like a good thing to do. I mean, I'm not a swimmer. I never had a background in swimming, obviously. You know, the pinball machines at the Spot Cafe had nothing to do with swimming. So swimming was a hard thing for me. Bike riding was... Yeah, same. They would just jump on the bike and just put the miles in, put the effort in. Then the running, I loved running. Yeah, so yeah, that was my best leg to run. I remember once, one day, we were, we were doing the National Park, Royal National Park Triathlon. And uh, another lifeguard, Maruba, used to do an, he'd, he'd run from Maruba back to Cronulla and we lived at Cronulla, Little of Britain. And we, we did the National Park, swam down the river, came back, jumped on the bikes. And all the Maruba guys, they're going, ah, oh, Peter LeBreton, he's going to beat you. You've got no chance, Lavers. I'm going, yeah, no, no, <laughs> I'll be all right. Oh, shit. Anyway, got on the bikes and went riding up from National Park up the hill, up Ontario Hill. And I saw Peter on the side of the road fixing his punchy tube. I'll go, I'll go. On. Another one, the Sydney Harbour Triathlon was a good one. That was, uh, we used to swim across from Men of All Sets across to Milson's Point. And we out to, I think it was Roseville, went back to put the bikes back at um, Milton's Point and then run across Harbour Bridge, round past Mrs. McCoy's chair, uh, back into Pier 1. Yeah, that, was, that was a good one. I was, I was actually you know, riding, and this guy, he overtook me. I just going, I feel flat. We're only about 3K into the ride. I'm going, oh, I must have put too much into the swim. And, I, I, and then I came good. So I caught up to him and said, hey, you feeling foggy? And he goes, yeah, good. I said, well, let's go. And we're going down this hill. We would have been doing 40, catching, you know, accelerating up to you know, 45. And I yelled out to this bike, coming through. And I was on the gutter side and uh, Foggy was on the outside. But the guy came onto me as we were, go, as we were going through. And I go, oh, it looks like I'm going in the gutter here. And I just went, you know, had a big smash. So I just put my elbow out just to sort of get him off me. And he's got the wobbles up. Next, I looked over my shoulder. I just saw him going upside down through the air, 
and just crashed and crashed like, you know, I don't know. Anyway, at the end of the race at P1, I'm standing around, I saw this dog bark off his shoulders, off his sides, off his knees, off his ankles. And I go, oh, far out, mate, you're the bloke. <laughs> I go and say hello. I'm like, no, this is better way to go. You know me. Hey, mate, did you join a surf club where you're at Cronulla and, and, and compete in, uh, you know, the Asian side of uh, the sport? Yeah, yeah. Um, I joined Cronulla and I went to Lura. Then I went to North Cronulla, then I went to Wanda, and now I'm back in North. <laughs> Did the whole four, mate. Yeah, they, they used to call me a club prostitute. I went, <laughs> you had to go with it. That was in the days when, you know, the footy teams, if you left the footy team and you went to another club, was, you know, but now everybody's doing it. Instead of, you know, whoever throws the, best, the most money at them, I'll, I'll move. There's no loyalty there. I mean, back then, it was the same. People go, I oh, come out, come here, John, you know, like, you know, I was a reasonable board paddler. Um, and we need a board paddler, so yeah, okay. Yeah, we didn't get a medal. Um, yeah, so I got a um, Australian individual title, which is maybe the highlight, and you know, five other teams event gold medals. So you must be quite pleased after, in hindsight, looking back, you grew up in the western suburbs, so your life could have been totally different, but your path led you to being a lifeguard which opened up so many more doors in, in a, a, a total different environment and going surfing, you know, racing. Yeah. It must be uh, good looking back on on that whole career. Yeah. I mean, it's just uh, my passion is funny enough, like living out in the Western suburbs, when we started surfing, I still retained it. I still feel like I want to surf like I was when I was 18. Um, I'm now <coughs> president of Crown Point Board Riders. We're uh, trying to pick the club up a bit. Things are going well at the moment. I mean, the days of certain big waves these days, um, I've done all my hero stuff. I'm 68, so I like to keep my arms in my sockets. And that, I mean, I still have a dig, but you know, I'm sort of you know, waiting my, my chances these days. So, yeah. Yeah, mate, I'm getting like that. I'm getting like that myself. <laughs> you're getting 68. You're a young bloke. I'm <laughs> a young bloke. Um, a lot of lifeguards go overseas as well to be lifeguards and they do a lot there. And you went over to Japan. So tell us what you did there when you went to Japan. Yeah, I had two, two tours over in Japan. Uh, we worked over on the West Coast, Nagata City Prefecture. It was, it was good. It's so hot over there. It sands brown and you've got to wear your thongs to the water's edge to, to get there half the time. It's so bloody hot. They had a good system of lifeguarding there, though, which I, I didn't mind. They do 45 an hour on and an hour off, so because it was that hot, they would just go back to the to the shed and lay down, and you know, then the afternoon shifts would be putting your putting your feet up um, for an hour, which is good. It's like when you're living in Spain, it's only having the afternoon siestas for 45 minutes. So, yeah, it was good training them. Um, I mean, we didn't have any mannequins or anything like that. Well, I think we had uh, two two rescue boards, and I trained. Uh, 25 lifeguards. I was training them over an afternoon physically, you know, been through running and swimming and paddling. Uh, so there was a lot of, you know, swapping around, changing around. They, you know, like we, we apparently all looked the same to them and they all looked the same to me. And that's the lakes were, they weren't turning up. I go, um, where's, where's so and so? Is it? And they go, oh, oh he's not sore back. He's not training today. <laughs> well, they weren't used to the training that we used to do. But yeah, so and as far as the resus training that we 
we didn't have any any mannequins to train them so we used to blow down the side of their mouth you know, to teach them how to do the CPR and unfortunately uh, we had a drowning while I was there uh, I got down to where, where the incident was occurring and the lifeguard was blowing down the side of the patient's mouth so it sort of take over on that one because uh, the other language barrier <laughs> differences and yeah, Murphy's Law being what it is. Uh, anyway. And then also uh, one of the Japanese lifeguards visited Australia, but he had an ac- accident when he was yeah. out here? Yeah, one of the saddest, unfortunate uh, incidents that I've ever come across. Um, he was he was over when I was training him over in Japan. He was always the first one to work. He'd be there you know, 15 minutes before. He'd be cleaning up the beach or you know, setting up and last one to leave in the afternoon doing the same thing. You know, you hang around and make sure everything is packed away and cleaned up and all ready to go the next day. And he always wanted to come to Australia. And after the second season I was over there, he came. And he came over with a group of the Japanese lifeguards. I turned up at work one day to to uh, Cronulla Beach and he'd been training early in the morning, doing some board training up at Wanda. And it was just... Just an unfortunate incident. He was paddling out through the break. It was a real, uh, not a big, but a sort of four to six foot uh, south groundswell. And it, apparently the wave just came over and he rolled and apparently the board must have pushed down into him and hit him in the head and it actually uh, severed his spinal cord, broke his neck, severed his spinal cord. And luckily, there was a board rider paddling out and he saw him um, in the water. And uh, he went out, paddle over and got him and got him in. But, yeah, for a guy that was so keen and such a, um, a good bloke, man, and, you know, just to have that sort of thing happen to him, we had to put him on a you know, jumbo jet, you know, um, harness and take the seats out and you know, send him back there with um, you know, a bit So it was very good. And how, do you, how does that affect you as as lifeguards? We've obviously, and you've dealt with a lot of resuscitations and, Things like that, and and but this one must have been a bit closer to home because you knew the person and, and and what he was trying to do and and how much he loved being in the ocean. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, I wanted to say that it was only a couple of days ago that I emailed to my other friend over in Japan to ask how he was going, and so I'm just waiting for an email to come back now to see see what he's up to. The last I heard, he was doing landscaping with uh, you know on a computer with the Piper on his head, and so he's working for a landscape company, which was um, that pleasing to hear. You, well, I mean, I, I have done a recess on a, another person I didn't know, and that was um, Liz Hardy in, in Lura Surf Club. Uh, Chris Idol, another lifeguard, and I were standing on the beach doing some training for com- upcoming Australian titles, and they had their surf race on, and I was, I was watching a couple of guys in the surf race because I knew. One of them I'd be competing against. I wanted to see how he was going, how he was paddling. So he came in, and then I was just watching the tail enders. This guy came around the can, and he just he took a took a stroke with his arm, but then he just laid there. And then I thought I was at a bit of seaweed, and then he took another stroke. I went, no, that's I know that's Liz Hardy. And he just laid there for another wave on over. So I called, quick, I grabbed Chris and said, let's go. And luckily, we were on the beach, and we saw it. It was a Sunday morning, 11 o'clock in the morning. So race out. Got him, uh, got him. It was taking a while to get him in. Back in those days, um, I gave him some rest in the water on the, on the rescue board. Uh, got him in, dragged him up the beach, uh, started doing just impressions on him, and 
water came out, going inside, got it out, running back, going mouth to mouth, and then gave me about five rounds of um, CPR, and he started to come good. Um, you know, he was slight breathing, his eyes started to figure it, started to open, went on his side, and more waters came out. Um, the paramedics were there really quickly, uh, got him on and got him up. I saw him uh, about three minutes, he came down to thank me. I said to him, I said, what do you remember about me? He said, like, do you remember me putting my mouth on your mouth and jumping on your chest? He goes, no. He said, I bloody saw a chest there, like, the next day. He said, I wake up at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on the Monday. He said, um, you know, they put me in a coma or whatever and did all the tests. And apparently he'd had a, you know, some sort of a tachycardia. And so he ended up with a, um, a pacemaker in to fix that up. And yeah, he said, I don't remember a thing about it. He said, I don't remember breathing in me. He said, I don't remember jumping on my chest. Uh, he said that um, I'm happy to be here. Thanks very much. So no, that's okay. That's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good one. You know, some of them you don't get. Some of them have massive heart attacks from overexertion, whatever. Um, you know, yourself, heart disease, biggest thing in Australia. Whether it's hereditary, lifestyle, whatever. It's something you've just got to uh, be prepared for. I heard one of your other podcasts, the ladies, who's. He's promoting the defibs. Yeah, Andy Pascalides. <laughs> yeah, Pascalides, yeah, yeah, great idea. And says Guy Leach. Yeah, they're both doing a great job getting the defibrillators out. And as we know that, you know how great they are. And you know, if you can get that onto someone really uh, quick, it's yeah. like they've got a very good chance of recovery. Yeah. Or get onto resus really quickly, which is Les was lucky that day. We're just standing on the water's edge, having a chat. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you guys weren't there on the water's edge, he, he, he may not be here today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's people in the surf club, you know, having their Sunday drinks and, and the veranda and, you know, the other what's that, they're standing around, you know, looking out for the races and whatever. Yeah, they're just lucky to stop them. Mate, now, uh, yeah, due to our lives, we have some um, tough times as well, some down times. And, you know, you're telling me about. Um, was it your second wife and then she ended up taking the kids and moved back to the Gold Coast and it must have been um, quite tough times to get through. And, and back in those days, a lot of people, you know, it was like we're even working as a lifeguard. It was like people just pat you on the back and toughen up and no one really talk about how you're actually feeling. I mean, our era, you know, obviously you're a bit older than me, but that era was it's, – it's pretty tough. And these days I find – a lot more people are talking about what they went through and how they dealt with it. So tell us a little bit about your story. Well, mate, um, I mean, it was my perfect, my, my dream was to have the, you know, the house with a white picket fence around it. And I basically did that. I did a upstairs extension on my house and, you know, it was basically a six bedroom, two bathroom ensuite uh, house opposite a park around the corner from the school. Uh, you know, 10 minutes down, down to my job. You know, she was working with a flight attendant. And I just about finished the upstairs extension, and a lot of it was all hands-on for myself. I you know, had trade skills. And um, I came out one day, and she says, uh, we, we're finished. Get out. I went, what are you talking about? I haven't finished the ensuite yet. And the bathroom. Get out. But anyway, so I just deteriorated from that. Yeah, I mean, three three children. One of my daughters. I had a boy, girl, boy. Yeah, they were all young, uh, nine years old, you know. And it was a you know, that, you know, house and the... Uh, she moved up the, straight up the Gold Coast. Uh, a year later, she moved up the Gold Coast. Yeah, and there's no good marriage breakups. I mean, they're all, they're all tough, you know, especially with children. But I thought, well, there's 
one or two ways I can go here. I can dig a hole and bury myself, or I can get up and go forward and try and keep kicking goals, which, which um, I think was sort of my life being turned out good for. But yeah, it's tough. I mean, everybody that goes through it is tough. I mean, you're trying your best to do your best, and there's all these pressures and, you know, outside pressures that you've got these days and finances and mortgages and. Yeah, mate, it's always tough. I mean, I'm, I'm on, I'm on to my third, mate. So I don't know if I'm getting, I don't know if I'm getting any smarter, mate. But anyway, <laughs> I was going to say, you know what it's like. <laughs> you just keep moving forward, mate. Just as you said, just keep getting up and uh, and moving forward. Yeah, you know, we all go through. No matter who you are, you go through some sort of a tough time. Some worse than others, but everyone has a a tough run. And I mean, do you have contact with the kids and that now? These, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're all good. Um, my son's a fighter pilot. Auto went through a tough time. She was anorexic, uh, you know, last year at school and then through to, she's now 31. It was tough uh, for her. Uh, mm. But, you know, I spent a lot of money on getting her down into Melbourne, the, you know, a special anorexic place down there, which didn't do a thing. And that was sort of like a bit of blackmail from my ex to get her down there, which mm. I had to put in the you know, $35,000 each, which is a lot of money after after tax pay for a lifeguard. So it was it was financially a bit hard. When I went out and worked other jobs and still do a bit of the TV stuff on the side, whatever. But the um, uh, yeah, so anorexic daughter, but she's finally coming good now. And my other son has just joined the Queensland Police Force. So but, you know, we have great contact, and they, they love me, and I love them, and there's no problem there. So yeah. Oh well, that's you know that's that's a, a great outcome because some families and and I've had people uh, contact me through the listening to the podcast and they don't have contact you know that the the parents split up it's it's turmoil and they don't get the chance of really connecting whether it's with the father or the mother whichever way it goes so that's great that um, you know you've, you've got good good relationship yeah. with the I mean, kids. I used to get them down for holidays every chance that I could go up there. One thing I never ever did was I never said a bad word about the mother because mm. it's their mother. Whatever's happened's happened. You know, she's you know, a great mother, bad wife. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, it must have been tough when you didn't you didn't see it coming either. That's another thing that makes it pretty hard. Did not see it coming. It was out of left field. I did not believe it. <laughs> well, mate, also the. Um, Early days growing up in the seventies, there's a lot of drugs around the time, and you know you must have had uh, a bit of fun times there as a, as a young bloke. The long, the long flowing hair. Yeah, yeah. He, um, I mean, people think I'm squeaky clean. I wasn't. I mean, when I first moved out to Cronulla, and you know, I was with my partner at the time, uh, she was going to that Mary Immaculate College, which is now St Pat's College at Sutherland. We've combined the boys with the girls, but I used to get get the drugs from Maryland's and then out to Kanoa and someone by her or given her and she's still at school and and then she unfortunately one night her, her mother was the she used to work in the canteen at Mary Immaculate College every day and the father was the accountant for Mary Immaculate College. So we used to have the priests that we forgave for dinner every Monday night when the priest came around. Um, he'd bring his washing around for Mrs. Iverson to do the washing for him and it was a real Catholic affair. Anyway one night, um, this was a Monday night, nothing happening down in Cronulla, so uh, my two flatmates, uh, we decided to load up the hash oil and have a, have a joint with hash oil, and it was thick, and it was it was good stuff. 
<laughs> anyway, I'm sort of nearly blocked off my head, and next time I'm going to knock on the door, scatter around the trying to open all the windows, clean all the air, fresh out. <laughs> I opened the door, and it was, it was Kim, one of our next partner. I go, oh, yeah, bloody God, come in. And she goes, no, no, my father's downstairs. They found two cups of hash oil, three tabs of acid, and the pill in my bag. And I'm going, oh, no. <laughs> She goes, no, you've got to, he wants, he wants to see you. You've got to go out and talk to him. I go, I can't talk to him. <laughs> I can't even put two words together. She goes, you've got to go. He's not going until you go down there and talk to him. Oh, far out. <laughs> so I'm splashing water on my face, you know, trying to straighten up. No, I had to go down, walk down. Oh, that was the most insane conversation. <clears throat> but um, I managed to pull it off. At one stage, I gave myself away. I went, oh, I'm really thirsty right now. <laughs> <laughs> But he was okay. It was more the pill that they were worried about. Right. Yeah. Drugs are just a stage, you know, like we're, we're going to be cool. It's going to be good. It's going to be all right. Yeah. And that's what we don't realise. Most uh, the, our parents as well have been through things when they were kids as well. So they probably understand. But, you know, obviously uh, trying to be uh, as good as they can to stop, you know, anyone sort of you know, getting on drugs where everyone does bits and pieces, you know, but I suppose... There are the ones that have got addictive personalities yeah. that then get hooked, they get hooked yeah. on it. And, and as I was a bit younger, but I could see in the 70s growing up, a lot of around Bronte, a lot of uh, the surfers got hooked on heroin. Uh, you would have seen that as well around the beaches. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I say I avoided that. I didn't want to put any needles in my arms. I mean, the, the pot that came out, the hydroponic, was that strong. You didn't even need acid. Like, yeah. And then I started to get a bit. Paranoid myself on the, you know, like, because you're always looking out for cops, you know, you're going to get busted. And I didn't want to really you know, push on my mother because my mother basically brought me up. Um, a lot of people don't know that my father was in a, a psychiatric, paranoid psychiatric hospital since I was oh. three years old. So that was a big sort of thing for me. And I thought, you know, I got the same thing happening that he had or whatever. I and mean, he was back, back in the days when they used to give you electric shock treatment. Um, but I didn't really want to go over and see him. Um, my grandmother used to take us over there. And it was just, I thought, there was no connection with my dad. You know, like, he was you know, sort of vegetating things. Um, it's something that I didn't want to aspire to, and it was hard for me to connect. It must have been hard at that age. Yeah. And do you think, looking back, um, that affected you at all as a child, you know, seeing that? And, and obviously... With the electric shock treatment, which now we know was, you know, obviously not the right thing to be doing to people, but it must have been really, really tough. Yeah, it was. Certainly, uh, yeah, I'd rather not go over there, you know, but, um, you know, they all thought it was the right thing to do. Like then my grandmother, it was her son, so, um, yeah, it was tough. And, you know, and nobody ever really told us what it was, why, you know, if it was bipolar, schizophrenia, mm-hmm. or whatever it was. Um, I was never really informed with my, my mother. So it was a bit hard that way. You know, you, know, you self-doubt, you know, is it going to happen to me? Or you know, at some stage, is it going to happen to me? Um, yeah, so. Yeah, I think those days too, no one spoke about it, did they? they, they uh, it was all hidden. Everything was hidden. Yeah. And it was very hard to understand. Yep. Yeah, it was. Yep. But now we're a lot, we're a lot more aware of um, you know, mental disorders and um, you know, everybody does have doesn't have a big small male female uh, we all have this you know, possibility of PTSD you know even through the resources that we all do you know the ones that don't make it 
um, now, if we, and the same with you at Bondi, you have a recess, you are offered counselling to help you with, with the um, after effects. So, yeah, I, mean, I think I had one counselling session the whole time when um, I was doing recess, and I had 11 recesses on the beaches, uh, and I did one over in Bali, just walking along the beach one day. But it's good, you know, mental awareness is, is coming out now. And it is good. I mean, and, and, and with our era, you know, no one ever spoke about it, and that's great. And that's through this podcast has been really good because people are coming on and telling their stories and and everyone's got a story and everyone's got a tough time they've been through. And and I find that getting out and speaking about it, like it's great you've come on and, and spoke about all the things you've been through because it does help a lot of people that listen. Yeah, yeah. No, they've been great. I guess I've listened to quite a few of yours and I've got more to listen to, so I enjoyed them. That's why I thought I'd you know, be happy to come on if you, if you wanted to entertain the idea and... Been good, mate. John, it's been great having you in. You've uh, you know, had a great career as a lifeguard. It's been unreal. You've now retired. How's retirement, mate? Yeah, good. I, I bought a van, which I'm sort of in the process of fitting out, but every time I go to do a bit more work on it, I, I look at the surf and I go, it's so screwed today. I can go for surf. <laughs> I've got a few injuries still. I've got yeah, sore knees and shoulder and but they're all holding together i've had a bit of steel putting my toe because that was not too bad yeah but i'm, I'm teaching uh, first aid one day a week um, i'm getting more calls to do that which uh, i'm just you know one day a week's plenty um, yeah i'm having just along yeah one of these days i'll get that van finished and do a bit more traveling east coast of australia i don't think we can beat it yeah australia great place Oh, good, mate. Now, at the end of the uh, interview, I do my uh, segment, Five Fun Facts. I'm going to throw five questions at you, mate. You can answer them however you like. Yep. Favourite takeaway food? Uh, I have to say Thai. Thai or yeah, Mexican number two. Favourite childhood memory? Uh, probably riding on the, the steam train from Macquarie Fields to Liverpool and then walking over and getting an electric train. And then back again on the Sunday afternoon. Right, cats or dogs and why? Just say dogs. I might have a bit of PTSD when one day <laughs> back in my youth days when I had some um, a, a joint and I was we inherited this stray cat and I was laying on a lounge and next thing it jumped on my chest and it was just clawing at my chest and it was like <laughs> right in my face. No more cats. <laughs> Turned you off the cats, mate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mate, what song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? Can I say there's two? Um, Jimmy, yeah, Barnes, Jimmy Barnes inspires me with the um, River Deep Mountain High. It's not one of his mm-hmm. original, but yeah, I went to a surfing comp up at the coast once and I just gee myself up listening to that song all the way up, up at um, Harrington. And uh, won every heat, won the semi, won the final. And the other one would be. Um, Lovers in the air. Yeah. I was up in Noosa once, and I don't, my, if, when I sing, the paint peels off the walls. <laughs> I got sucked into getting up at karaoke, and uh, nobody, was, nobody was getting up dancing. But when I started with this Lovers in the Air, because it was from the 2000 Olympics, I remember it then, so I did that one. And then all these people got up and started dancing. I was like, oh, that's a good one. That's a good one, mate. Yeah. Now, the last one if you were, were a DJ, what would your DJ name be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you're a lightning wave lightning wave that'll do I like it mate I like it that'll go with your uh, karaoke yeah, yeah. 
Mate, uh, John, it's, it's a pleasure, mate. I've known you for a long time, you know, being lifeguards and you've done a lot of great work for lifeguards. And as you said, you, you've brought in the, uh, the jet skis, which have been a, a great asset to lifeguards. Yeah. And now they've gone on from there, you know, obviously doing tow-ins. So yeah. it's great stuff, mate. And I love uh, having a chat. You've got some great stories. I love the uh, stripper story. That's a, that's a, a ripper. <laughs> yeah. You might be able to Google it. It was on, um, it was on uh, Mike Walsh show one day. That's <laughs> all. That's all it is. Man, I might Google. I might get some photos for social media. It could be good. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, mate, it's uh, great having a chat. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, great having a chat with you, Hoppo. See you soon. Now let's go to Beach Banner. Go this week. In the beach shack for a bit more beach banner is Reedy. How are you, mate? I'm good, mate. It's good to be back again. Jeez, I'm spending some time in this shack. Just getting a good trip, chuck my own bed in here, sleep it. <laughs> it's all, always good to have you in there, mate. Oh, it's mate, always good. I love it. It's great. <laughs> well, you've just recently got back from a trip and uh, you went over to assist Whippet in his quest to do the English Channel. How was that? Mate, it was it was an experience. I tell you, I I I I I'm I was in awe of the training that he did for the for the actual swim. I thought for me that was probably the most impressive thing I've seen. Whippet's an unbelievable athlete, and he never trains for anything in his life. And this thing, he actually put in some hard work and and did the yard. So it was incredible to see him be quite successful. But for me personally, it was a real eye opener into what a logistical nightmare that event is. Like I've been lucky enough to do Molokai a couple of times and I, and Molokai is the the paddle from the island of Molokai to Oahu. It's a 55k paddle and it's, it's, uh, I mean that getting boards over and all that sort of stuff, that's a logistical nightmare. But the English channel, it's an, it's a whole nother level because, you know, there's plenty of Australians that go that, that train and, and do the qualifier and do everything they need to to get over there and they actually don't even get to swim. You've got a you've got to book a window two years in advance. Once you've got that window, when you get over there, you, you're working with tides, you've got to have the tides in your favor. and then you've got to hope that in that window you've got good weather because you know if the weather's really bad, the boats won't go. And you know I mean people spend, anywhere between twenty and sixty thousand dollars to swim the English Channel. And it's I don't know, it's not you know me, Hop, I'm pretty social kind of guy. I quite like talking and I like, you know, interacting with people. Swimming like the training that we've had to do, the amount of time with his head under the water, I I don't know, it's not really my cup of tea, but but mate, good on him. He he had he he had an unbelievable day. We call him the golden child because he seems to like I don't know. He just—he's like Kelly Slater at pipe when he needs a ten-point wave and the the wave arrives, you know, and he gets it right on the buzzer. So, um, look, he got beautiful conditions for at least the first six hours. Things went a little bit downhill with about three hours to go. Uh, it got really bumpy, but it, it, to his credit, he just pushed on through and just got there in the end. And he did it in a phenomenal time. He he went nine hours and forty minutes, and to be honest. I mean, I reckon if he'd known when he was three or four K out what time he was looking for, I reckon he probably could have put a bit more time into that. Uh, sorry, taken a bit more time off that. But 
you know, you're dealing with a lot of different things with Tide and all that sort of stuff. But once we got to the other side in France, I was lucky enough to swim up the rocks with him and give him a high five and, and uh, shoot some video of him and really capture the experience. And, and yeah, look, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing feat. Jellyfish, you know, you're dealing with big cargo ships coming past. He didn't have the really bad conditions, but some people do. Some people leave at 3 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, that's, you know, some people leave at 11 o'clock at night. It's like it's you're just working with the tides and it's it was just an incredible experience. And, um, yeah, I was just stoked to be a part of it. Would I ever do it personally? I don't think I don't think I ever would. I just don't think I'd enjoy it. And I liked if I'm going to put myself through that much pain, I want to semi enjoy it a little bit. <laughs> know what I mean? But what about you, Hot? Would you ever give the English Channel a crack, you reckon? Oh, mate, I, I don't know. Same as you. I don't know whether... I find, I think, with all these races and, and adventures that you do, it's the training, I think, is the hardest part. Mm, so I, I don't think I'd be able to put in the the week after week after week in cold water and, and doing those, you know, three-hour, six-hour swims to prepare for it. I think when you do it, it's probably, you know, you, you know you've got to achieve it, but it's the build-up to it would be tough. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people don't know, but to actually even go over there to swim it, your qualifying swim is six hours nonstop in under 16-degree water. And that, for me, is uh, that's where I tap out. I don't like the cold at all. But, you know, he did it. He got through it. I I did support crew for him for his six-hour swim, and it was he did really well. He did it. I did it for Quinn Dara as well, another one of the lifeguards, and he, you know, Whippet probably did it a little, I don't know, did it. I think Quinno probably didn't have as much fat on him as as Whippet did, and that probably helped. But, mate, Whippet, again, the conditions were like oil for the first six hours. It was amazing, and the water temperature was 19 degrees. I don't know if that's because of global warming or whatever, but, you know, like, I mean, if it's if it stays like that, if the water temperatures stay like that, I think you'll find a lot more people will cross. But it's still, it's still I think, you know, Whippet's time is in the top 15 to 20 of the best of the best uh, Australian times, fastest Australian times, so that's... That's a pretty good claim to fame. But, yeah, there's there's talk, there's rumours. We'll be sending a lifeguard team because you can do it in teams, so a team of yeah. six to go over and race the pommies over there, the English yeah. team. So I know you've got a lot of English listeners. <laughs> if there's a promoter out there, any English Don Kings that are keen to make it happen, Hopper, I reckon you, me, Whippet, Quinn, we'll get a couple more other good swimmers. We'll make a good team. We'll go over there, have a few pints and flog the poms over the English Channel. What do you reckon? <laughs> I reckon that's the go. That's a great way to do it, I think. Six, so with six people, that would cut the time down and also you wouldn't be swimming as far. But similar to doing the, the rotto swim. Yeah, it'd be similar, except you're, you're, you're dealing with tides. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's one swim that I – that's probably the longest swim I'll ever do. I'll, I'll, I'll have a crack at rotto one day. I just like the idea of it with the beautiful crystal clear water. And, you know, you've done it a few times. The water's usually yeah. pretty warm. And, I mean, the best thing about rotto, as we know, is the after party on the island, right? Like, you, you know, you haven't had a really good time at Rotto if you haven't missed the last ferry home and had to sleep on the island. <laughs> Guilty. Yeah, that's happened a few times. Yeah. Has that happened to you? Oh, mate, yes. Oh, and I, I think I've done it 10 times. I don't know how many times I've missed the ferry. <laughs> that's right. You, you've almost, it's a rite of passage. If you're going to do the Rotto swim, you've got to get so drunk that you miss the last yeah. ferry and you fall asleep with six quackers around you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, uh, <laughs> I think it was a period of 10 years there I did it. I never, the only way I got to Rottnest Island was swimming. How good's that? That's a I never got the ferry, never ever got the ferry across. Wow. But you got the ferry yeah. back. 
Got the ferry back. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to hear. You wouldn't want to swim back. We know no. Martin Powfrey, local Bronte legend. He's done both ways, which is pretty impressive. Yep. Yeah, no, that's uh, that is impressive. I think once I've crossed that line, I don't want to uh, get back in and come back nah, again, especially no when way. that party's going nuts. The oh, music's going. Mate. The beers are there. Yeah, there's no getting back in to swim back. Just get me into some hot chips and a cold beer. That's, <laughs> that's all we need. All right, Reddy, thanks, mate. Uh, stopping in the beach shack and having a chat. Anytime. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. Now this week's letter in the mailbag is from Geraldine. And she's from Queensland. She said, I really enjoyed your interview with Andy Pascalides, especially the part about the fibrillation. Yeah, it's a great interviewing people with a great background, but also what they're doing for people as well. And Andy is doing a magnificent job with defibrillators, getting them out there at all sporting venues, sporting clubs. And it's something that we've used for a long time at the beach and we realise early defibrillation can really save people's lives. It gives you a really good chance and I think if we keep going like Andy is and get them out there to as many people as possible and really to where everyone has them in their homes, in their cars, they're basically accessible to anybody at any time. So thanks uh, for your letter and I'll catch everybody again next week. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.